Psalm 100. So the great psalm of thanksgiving. Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs and know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. So that's the great psalm of thanksgiving. And, and uh, you, you know, on the, uh, I, I don't give thanks often enough. And, and just every time I read something like that, it reminds me of how, how little time I spend in prayer giving thanks to God. Most of my prayer is, God, can you do this for me or do that for me? And, uh, and so little of it is thanksgiving, and yet I have so much to be thankful for. It. I mean, not only have, has God given us his great salvation for reasons I don't understand, he's chosen me to be part of it, um, but I have, just in this temporal world I have so many things to be thankful for, for, for family, that, that, that we live in this place where, where we can worship freely, that, um, that, I, that I live in a time where... Uh, most of our children we can expect to live to adulthood. You know, you've only got to go back a few generations and that wasn't so. As you would probably expect to lose at least half of your children before they got to be adults. I'm very thankful that I live now and not then. Um, but as I get older, I find that, that when I do find time to give thanks to our gracious God, the thing that, that, I, that I'm more and more thankful for uh, is the church. I, I'm so thankful for God's church. Uh, you know, we tend to think of all the problems of the church, uh, the, the petty squabbles about music and how we do things. You know, I remember we were in a church once that, that there was a major dispute over what angle the pews were on. Um, you know, we, we kind of, for a special evening service, we changed the angle of the pews slightly and, oh, it could, yeah, it, it caused major ructions in the church, even people threatening that they would leave if the pews weren't put back where they were. Um, anyway, anyway, those sort of things. And then, of course, we get the, the much more serious things of the, the, the schisms rent asunder and the heresies distressed. There's, there always seems to be the, the, the pack of wolves circling around God's church, just waiting to, to see if they can tear off a few, uh, take them away with some or other heresy. But isn't it remarkable that despite all that, the church goes on? Um, when you think that it hasn't just been, you know, we, we tend to think in our own little world and, and this part of God's church, which has only been going for 12 months, but, but the church has been going since, since the time of Adam and Eve, that God's people have met, they've, they've come together, they've, they've taught the truth, they've, they've uh, learned the truths of God, they've learned the gospel, and they've been affected by it. And for all that time, especially since the time of the Lord Jesus, the church has, has grown like a, like a huge big grapevine that, that's with its roots deep in the word of God. And it's growing over the whole earth with branches everywhere. Um, of course, some branches are, don't bear any fruit and so they, they, they're cut off, pruned away. Some, then some branches have the, the terrible cancer of, uh, of heresy that get of liberal theology and, 
um, prosperity doctrine and all these other things that infest the word of God, uh, infest the church of God, and of course they, they, they don't last. They, they eventually just die off themselves. So through all of that, it's still going, even in the darkest times when the whole church, we look back through history and we see times when it looked like there was just no one left, uh, like Elijah when he complained to God that he was the only one. But through that time, all those times, God has preserved his church. Um, in Elijah's time, he, God told him, no, there's still 7,000 others here who haven't, haven't bent their knee to false gods. So most of these faithful men and women who've um, kept the church going through the, through the good times and bad, their, their names have been lost to history. We don't know who they are, but God knows. God knows who they are. And they continued to meet. They kept praying and teaching and reading the word and, and, uh, and meeting together and baptising and celebrating the Lord's Supper. All those things, they've kept doing it. When you think about how many times that must have happened in the last 2,000 years. And we know that must be so because here we are. The church, still going. It's still here. Still teaching, still hearing. Still doing all the things that the church has always done and and so I'm not ashamed to say that, that I love the church. And why wouldn't I anyway? Because it's through the church that I came to believe. Um, and it's the church that continues to do what the church has always done. It meets, it encourages, it prays, it teaches, it baptises, it, baptizes, it, it marries and it, it grieves for us when we die. But not, as for, not, as, not like those who have no hope. It prays. But even without any of that, I would still say, I love the church. Because the Lord Jesus loved his church. He died for her so that she could be presented to him as a, as a beautiful bride, holy and blameless. The Apostle John, in his vision, said, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. That's the church. That's what John saw coming down out of heaven. God loves his church. We, sh we should too. We should spend less time criticising and, and, and being worried about the church and instead we should be thankful for the church. Now the Apostle Paul, to come to today's reading, he loved the church. Even this troublesome church at Corinth that, that seemed to be always giving him, him issues. He wanted only the best for for the church at Corinth as well. And it grieved him deeply to see her being torn apart and blown away by sin. And so in this reading today, we're presented with an example of, of how we should relate to God's church. Um, Paul's authority was unquestioned as an, as an apostle because he'd been called personally by the Lord Jesus to go and, and preach to the Gentiles. But even so, some were questioning it and the church had divided into camps, the church at Corinth, you know, depending on which leader they followed. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. But Paul's great desire was not that they should love him or follow him, but that they should love Jesus and follow Jesus. I mean, the Apostle Paul didn't, when he was in Corinth, he didn't even, he wasn't even paid, although it was definitely his right 
to do that because he didn't want them to think that his motive was anything but love for the people and for the gospel. If we go back to the, uh, the first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 9, he says, I am not used, this is from verse 15, I, I'm not used, I have not used any of these rights and I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. And yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make use of my rights in preaching it. And so in today's reading, he again appeals to the people of Corinth, to the church, and saying that he has only ever acted out of, out of holiness and sincerity. It's not because he, he sat down and reasoned things out and thought, well, you know, maybe if I go to Corinth and, and I don't ask them to pay me and, and I seem very sincere, well, maybe I'll get a few people to, to join my church. Well... But it's not like that. Everything that Paul has done for the church is because of God's grace. He recognises that and he's telling them that. He's God's grace to them and his grace to Paul. And so he can't boast that he has converted these people. That's not his boast at all. He can't even boast that he's founded this church because it was the grace of God working through him that did that. And they can't boast either although they've been very inclined to do so when you read the first, first letter. They can't boast because worldly wisdom had nothing to do with it and they did done nothing to deserve anything that they had. It was all grace. However, Paul says, a day is coming when they will boast. Not, not worldly boasting like, um, like, look how good we are, um, because God has saved us and, and he hasn't saved those, those other schmucks over there. No, it'll be, this is Paul. On that great day when we stand before the Lord Jesus, the people of Corinth will say, this is Paul. He was our brother in Christ. And Paul will say, this is the church at Corinth. And he'll say it for us too, because we're still reading his stuff. This is the church. They are my brothers and sisters. We met together in good times and bad. We taught, we encouraged, we held each other up. And Paul, of course, is, he's very aware of the nature of the church. Um, he gives some extensive teaching on this in his first letter to the Corinthians, especially in chapter 12 to 14. There's one body with many members and many parts and the, the point, one of the points he really makes is that all those parts are important. And so he makes quite a big thing of the fact that, that he plans to come back and visit them. He's, um, it's kind of hard to know what actually was going on here. Like Paul said, he had planned to visit them on the way and, uh, and then, then come back through Corinth again on the way back, but something has happened. Uh, he thinks that that would have been a great thing if he could have visited them. And it would have. It, I mean, to have the Apostle Paul come and visit your church, you can't really get much better than that. And, but it would have been great for, 
for Paul also to see his church. But something happened and it, and it didn't happen. But given that Paul teaches, uh, you know, his teaching on the church being a body made up of lots of members, then I, I think it's reasonable to assume that, that he wouldn't only apply this to himself. Um, you know, sure, some, some members are more important to the well-being of a body than others. I was doing some work on our windmill the other day up the top of it and, uh, you know, it's been, I think the tower's probably 70 years old. Uh, the fan blew off years ago, now it's just got an electric motor thing on it. But, but it's kind of starting to show its age a bit. But, I mean, there's four main bits of angle iron that are the main bit and, of course, it's bolted to a concrete base. But a couple of the horizontal bits have broken and, and then there's a couple of, a few bolts have fallen out so that the triangular bits aren't sort of what they used to be. And, yeah, you know, that's kind of a... It occurred to me that that's kind of a vision of the church, really, because people like the apostles, they are, they're the corner bits, they're the foundation is Christ Jesus and, and some of the other bits, you know, you can do without them, but it's not as strong as it used to be. Uh, we, the church, everyone is important. Even the, even the least of the parts is still important to the church and so when we make a decision not to come to church because we just can't be bothered or because we're too lazy or whatever, it affects the church, it weakens it, it neglects it, the church. We, we must not neglect meeting together. The, the church may seem to us at times to be very flimsy, you know, weak and tossed about on the winds and storms of this broken world. But it is important that we understand that the church is strong because Christ is not only the foundation but he continues to sustain the church, to hold it together. And so the church is secure. Uh, you can see it there in verse, uh, in verse 21. It says, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit. And it guarantees what is to come. So the future of the church is not in doubt. Uh, you know, we, we, we might see it as being weak and tossed about at times and worry about its future, but the future is not in doubt. It is guaranteed, and, and we can see that because for how long it's been going despite all the problems. We are those on whom the end of the ages has come. And since the beginning of time, God has made promises which his church has clung to. Right from the promise in Genesis chapter 3 that a, a Satan crusher would come. And the promises to Abraham and Moses and David and all the prophets. We are living in the time when God has said yes to all those promises. So many people waited through all those Old Testament times for those promises to be fulfilled. And yet it seemed like they never would be and God was saying either maybe or no. But with the coming of the Lord Jesus, God has said yes to all those promises. They've all been fulfilled except for one which still awaits complete fulfilment and that's the return of the Lord Jesus. And on that great day, he will say yes to his people gathered together. And the people will reply, Amen. Well, as I said, something happened that made Paul change his mind about returning to Corinth. 
He says it was to spare them. It seems likely that they were behaving as the immature Christians that most of them were, especially in relation to a man who had apparently been sleeping with his mother-in-law. It was a gross sin. But after Paul's first letter, it seems like they'd finally got around to doing something about this. You know, they thought they had this great freedom in Christ, so, well, what does it matter if, if someone's doing this? That That's our freedom. But Paul had corrected them on that, and it seemed like they had disciplined this man and finally got around to, to fixing the problem. But I think, I think, I suspect that the reason Paul didn't go back is because he was worried about what else he would find. Uh, he didn't, he didn't, and he thought that would cause great distress in the church of Corinth because he would have to tell them all over again what they were doing wrong and, uh, and it, would, uh, it would distress him also, uh, having seen that. So he seems to have wisely perhaps chosen to, to not go but to just write a letter and, uh, and leave the leaders of the church to sort it out. But then it seems that that decision to not come has also upset them. Uh, they seem to be saying, well, put this Paul, you know, what's so good about him? He can't make up his mind. He says one minute he's coming and then he says he's not. And so his, his uh, reply to that is that, that what seems like random happenings uh, are not. This is God working. It, it might look like I'm saying yes in one minute and no another minute, but it's not. It's God's grace working through me to do things. And this, of course, applies to everything we do. Everything we, that happens in this world, as far as the Christian is concerned, there is no such thing as a random happening. Everything happens for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It's all happening according to God's grace. God is working in Paul and in his church and he has put his seal on them. You know, we've got a... Joe's got a new pup and... Uh, We've got to get it microchipped. It's an amazing technology, isn't it? They can put this thing in a dog and then just put a thing up and it'll tell you whose dog it is and what it's... You know, it's kind of like that, this seal of ownership that God has put on us. I mean, he hasn't got a microchip reader, but it doesn't work like that, I don't think, but he knows his people. And, uh, and so our, our future is not in doubt. God is our owner. He's given them his spirit to help us to help us to believe, to know the truth. And it's like a deposit that's still awaiting its, its, its redemption. They know in part now, these people know in part, um, they mess things up, they get, they, uh, they get things wrong, we all do that. But one day we will know fully, even as we are fully known. All this applies to us. We mess up. We know only in part. We see through a glass darkly that our future is guaranteed. There is no doubt about what is going to happen. God has said yes to us. And all the promises that he has made are yes in Christ. And he is ours and we are his. The beautiful church prepared as a bride dressed for her husband.